weekends on Cambridge 105 Radio. Flavour explores the food scene in the city in South Cambridgeshire, speaking to the chefs who've made Cambridge their home. I'm just very passionate about oysters. I love eating oysters. And yeah, I suppose if it was something that I found that there was something to explore. The food trucks, the market stall holders, and those delivering fresh food to your door. It's that coal rabbi, we used to have to give it away because no one would touch it until they got to try it and use it and then, and then they came back and had it more. Flavour, this Saturday at midday, online and on Cambridge 105 Radio. Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio. With Heifer's Bookshop, the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876. Our rather than books. Hello and welcome to Bookmark. This is the show that talks about books and writing with a local slant. Our featured guest on today's show is Toby Wilkinson, talking about his book, Tutankhamun's Trumpet, the story of ancient Egypt in a hundred objects. We'll also hear from Christina Buckton on publishing her debut poetry collection in her eighties. And Michelle Paver chats about bringing her incredibly successful Wolf Brother series to a close with the final novel, Wolfbane. But first of all, Toby, we'll give you a proper introduction in just a moment, but welcome to Bookmark. Thank you for having me. Egyptology, that's your subject. How did you find Egyptology? Was it, was it always going to be that subject? Well, it really happened on my fifth birthday, so I was very young. My mum and dad gave me for my birthday present on my fifth birthday a children's encyclopedia. And one of the pages in that book was uh, different writing systems from around the world. So Roman script, Arabic script, Indian script. And my little five-year-old mind sort of zeroed in on the hieroglyphics. And because my name is fairly short, just four letters long, I worked out how to write my name in hieroglyphics. And I thought to myself, I'd love to do this properly one day. And so that kind of planted the seed from the age of five and things just went from there. What period are we talking about? We talk about Egyptology. What period are you discussing? Because you talk about dynasties, don't you, rather than centuries? Ancient Egyptian civilization lasted an awfully long time, 3000 years. So Egypt comes together as a single country in about 3000 BC. And we typically end ancient Egypt with the Roman conquest of Egypt and the death of Cleopatra in 30 BC. So it's 3000 years of civilization. And for convenience, Egyptologists divided up into dynasties. There are 31 dynasties plus the Ptolemies at the end. And that just helps us to kind of divide up what is a very long time period. And we are all fascinated by pharaohs, by pyramids, by the ancient Egyptian culture. What is it about that culture that fascinates us, do you think? I think it's a few things. It's very remote in time and place from us, and that gives it a certain magical quality. There's the sheer sophistication of such an ancient culture. If you think about the precision of the pyramids and the artistry that you see on the temple walls, I think that combination of great antiquity and great sophistication is, is very appealing. And then there's just the sort of slightly weird and wonderful aspect of ancient Egypt, the mummification and, and uh, the hidden tombs. And it has a, an element of, of mystery to it, which is also hugely appealing, I think. And this is a, a study, an area of study that has certainly evolved over the years, as you cover in your book. It has, absolutely. And 
if we go back to the, the early days of, of Egyptology in the early 19th century, it was really little more than treasure hunting, people looking for, for gold and for uh, undiscovered tombs. What's happened really since the mid 20th century is that the full range of scientific techniques that are applied in other areas of archaeology have also been applied to ancient Egypt. So we can now learn an amazing amount by, let's say, taking an X-ray of a mummy or doing a CT scan or looking at ancient pollen remains. So there's a whole variety of ways of tackling the subject, which reveal lots about life in ancient Egypt. Well, life in ancient Egypt was what we're going to be talking about in your wonderful book, but we'll hear your first choice of music in just a moment. Is music important to you, Toby? Music's very important to me, and and, um, I've uh, performed in in choirs and as an instrumentalist since childhood. So, yeah, music is is a really important part of of my life and how I like to relax. And this is Dido's Lament from Dido and Aeneas by Purcell. Why this one? Not only is it a very beautiful piece of music, but I think it also takes us right back to the kind of raw human emotion around death and burial. As an Egyptologist, much of what I study is around death and burial, including in the the latest book, The Tomb of Tutankhamun. Dido's Lament reminds us that, you know, with every death and burial, actually, there's a human story. One can imagine Tutankhamun's young widow expressing similar sentiments when she had to lay her husband to rest, who died at a very young age. So for me, it's, it's forming a connection between that ancient past and our own human experience. That was Dido's Lament from Dido and Aeneas by Purcell, the first choice of music on Bookmark today from our featured guest, Toby Wilkinson. Professor Toby Wilkinson is an Egyptologist and a fellow of Clare College, Cambridge. He's the author of 12 books, including The Rise and Fall of Ancient Egypt, which won the 2011 Hessel Tiltman Prize and was the Times and Sunday Times Book of the Year. A World Beneath the Sands, the Golden Age of Egyptology, came out in paperback earlier this year with The Economist describing it as a fascinating new history. Tutankhamun's Trumpet, the story of ancient Egypt in a hundred objects, was published last month. David Aronovich in The Times called it beautifully written, sumptuously illustrated, constantly fascinating, and the work of a man who was practised at explaining the past to the present. I enjoyed it too very much, Toby, and explaining the past to the present, this is aimed at the general reader, isn't it? It is absolutely. I've, I've always felt that ancient Egypt is such a rich subject and it's, it's such a fascinating subject. It deserves a wide audience. You know, what I've tried to do in all my books really is to take the very latest research and scholarship, but to present that in a way that is accessible to the general reader. And what I was fascinated by, of course, we all know the big things from Tutankhamun's tomb, the sarcophagus and the beautiful mask, but the smaller things that were found, I didn't realise almost... Five and a half thousand things were found in this tomb, ranging right down to lentils and chickpeas, that kind of thing. It is incredible. And and so few of those five and a half thousand objects are well known today. And why I wanted to write this book was to allow those objects to tell their own stories, not only about the life and times of Tutankhamun, but about the wider civilization that created them. And I think people will be surprised to hear that a king was buried with objects as humble as a loincloth or a toy chest, or a first aid kit, or a lock of his grandmother's hair. You know, these these are very personal, everyday objects. 
that I think help us to reach across the centuries and form a, a human bond with what can seem a very remote civilization. So from five and a half thousand objects, you had to whittle it down to a hundred. What were the criteria for getting in your list? Well, it was a difficult choice, and I suppose I could have chosen a, a different selection. Some of them will be well known, like the golden funerary mask, but I wanted a range of, of objects that would surprise readers, but objects also that told a wider story and that allow us a kind of window into the ancient Egyptian world. So each of the hundred objects has a little uh, story around it, not only about how it came to be in Tutankhamun's tomb, but as a way of, of opening up then a wider discussion about different aspects of, of Egyptian civilization. And we assume that those things are in the tomb to help him in the afterlife. But as your book tells us, there are many reasons why things are put in that tomb. That's just one. Yes, ultimately, things in the tomb were, were designed to help the pharaoh li live forever. But there are undoubtedly some objects that were included for very personal reasons. So I've mentioned a lock of his grandmother's hair. And I think that tells us something about his upbringing. He probably would have been fairly remote from his parents. Indeed, like children in royal families throughout history, didn't see much of his mum and dad, probably saw rather more of his beloved grandmother and had this, this token of, of hers, which he clearly treasured. And then we see objects bearing the names of his sisters, with whom evidently he would have had quite a lot of, of time as a child. So I think what we see in many of the objects is not the king, but actually the boy. Again, it's that human story which I think comes out so powerfully from the objects buried with him. You say every object is an insurance policy. What do you mean by that? Well, the ancient Egyptians believed that in order to be reborn into the afterlife, you needed all of the right kit with you. Not only magical objects to help you navigate the winding waterways of the underworld and, and the various trials and tribulations that awaited you, um, but also very practical things. They believed that the spirit needed a body to live in. So that was why they went to the trouble of mummifying bodies. But it also needed all of the sustenance that you or I would need during our daily lives. So that's why Tutankhamun was buried with chickpeas and lentils and garlic and the, the wherewithal to make bread. So on a very practical level, the things that were buried with him were there to ensure that he could live forever. And it was such a game changer, the finding of that tomb, wasn't it, in uh, 1922? I hadn't realised that not much was known really about Tutankhamun before then, let alone about the wider civilization. He was a very little known pharaoh. I mean, he only reigned for nine or ten years. And in the big sweep of ancient Egyptian history, he's one of the least significant pharaohs. But the irony is, of course, his is the only royal burial that's been discovered largely intact. So he has assumed an enormous importance which he probably never enjoyed in his lifetime or you know, during the, uh, the wider sweep of, of Egyptian history. But it is undoubtedly the greatest archaeological discovery ever made anywhere in the world. And you know, we're still studying those five and a half thousand objects, even a hundred years after the tomb was found. Are there any ethical considerations about this? I mean, obviously, it's beautiful to look at these things, but you are raiding a tomb, aren't you? It's not something we would do today. I know it's a long time ago, no different belief system, but... Do those ethical questions arise in this scenario? Yes, they absolutely do. And, and one of the questions I'm asked about quite a lot when, when I talk about ancient Egypt is how would the ancient Egyptians feel, um, us you know, studying the objects in their tomb? And I think in the case of Tutankhamun, it's an interesting question because 
Yes, the ancient Egyptians didn't like the idea that people would desecrate their tombs after their death, and they would invoke all sorts of bad things to happen to people who, who despoiled a tomb. But on the other hand, their biggest fear was being forgotten. And what every ancient Egyptian wished beyond anything else was to be remembered after their death, for their name to be spoken again. And of course, Tutankhamun's name is now spoken by millions of people around the world every day. So he has gained an immortality that he, he could never have dreamed of. So in that sense, I think he would be smiling. Because you do have to get quite intimate with these objects, don't you? I mean, there, there were things wrapped in the mummy bindings around the body. Yes, and I think the way in which his tomb was uncovered a hundred years ago is not how we would do things today. I think now with X-ray photography and, and digital imaging, we can investigate things in a far less intrusive manner than would have been the case a century ago. But to be fair to our forebears, they were pretty scientific and meticulous in the way that they investigated the tomb, albeit with the technology that they had to hand at the time. But these days, I think we would do it in a much less invasive way. And one of the points you make is how much of Egyptian life was shaped by the geography of the Nile Valley and its surroundings, it's a very particular part of the world. Yes, and I think it's why visitors to Egypt are so entranced, because it is a very special environment. You have the Nile threading its way through what is otherwise desert, and that contrast between the great fertility of the Nile Valley and the barrenness of the desert that physical geography really shaped the ancient Egyptian civilization, and it's very powerful. And you notice it in, in all sorts of aspects. I mean, the central importance of the river, of the fertility that the river made possible, the dominance of the sun in ancient Egyptian religion, which perhaps is not so easy to understand when you live in, in, in England, in a, in a climate where there's lots of cloud most of the day. But in Egypt, where generally speaking, the sky is cloudless, the sun is a very visible phenomenon and it rises and falls quite quickly in those latitudes. And so it's not surprising that the sun occupied a particularly prominent place in the ancient Egyptian mindset. So I think in order to really get to understand ancient Egypt, you need to visit the country and, and see the, the geographic crucible in which this great civilization grew up. And they really used everything in the landscape, didn't they? The stone, the water, the wildlife, the vegetation. Absolutely everything was, was harnessed as a resource, not only in the, in the Nile Valley, but in the deserts. There were minerals to be mined and, yeah, everything was, was known about. And if we think of the ancient Egyptians as being confined to their villages and towns and not exploring, you know, we'd be absolutely wrong. We know that they were very widespread travellers, they explored the furthest reaches of the Sahara Desert. They were really very well aware of their environment and everything that it could provide for them. Thank you, Toby. We'll come back to you in just a moment. But let's take a, a little sidestep now into poetry and hear from Christina Buckton. Chris won on the Buses Awards from the Guernsey International Poetry Competition in 2018, 2020 and 2021. She's had work published in Orbis, Fenland Journal and One Hand Clapping. Holding It Together is her first collection and being published by the Lamplight Press. I met her to talk about it at her home in Cambridgeshire, along with the founder of the Lamplight Press, Robert Louis Abrahamson. I started by asking Robert Louis why he set up the publishing house. Mainly to 
to get around all the, the big uh, publishing companies, which take a long time to review a book and then get it out. This way, we've been able to turn a book around very quickly, in just a matter of a month or even two months, perhaps. We can publish my own books and then publish worthy books of our friends and others that we know. So it gives us a sort of feel of control over the market now, doesn't it? And are there particular challenges that you face setting up a small press? The writing is fine, the editing is fine, even designing the books is a challenge, but it, after that, where the big publishers have the advantage of having the whole machinery for publicising something. But we're working on it, and we'll get there. What I loved about it, as the author of your second publication, was the closeness of the team, that everything from the colour of the pot on the cover to the blurb to the font could be a joint activity and that was as much fun as writing the poems for me it was wonderful so how did you find chris we met through the linton music society and discovered all sorts of connections chris lives in a house that was the home of my wife's friend when she grew up chris's son lives in florida a mile or two away from where my mother lived there were too many connections for us not to make this extra connection. And Chris, how does it feel to be published? Well, it was on my bucket list. I thought I'd invented the whole thing. It came together so seamlessly. And then other people who I knew already who'd been encouraging me as a poet gave me the final push to jump. You've been, you've been published in many magazines. Many, yes. I was amazed how many mm. magazines you've been published yeah. in and got yeah. awards. Yeah. And so this is just yeah. just a final step yeah. before the next book comes out sometime in the future. Yeah, I haven't been writing very long, but I've made it up in rushing because I know time's short and there's lots to say. And I only started writing about three years ago when I had a knee replacement and... The influence of morphine <laughs> did magic. And then I found I could still write like that without the morphine. So for the last three years, I've been writing every day. And even though Chris is a friend, you're not publishing her because she's a friend, you're publishing her because of the quality of her work. I don't know what I would have done if we decided to offer her the book and then I decided that Actually, they're not very good. I'm very grateful that, that they're not, not very good, that they are good. Chris, you're going to read some for us now, yeah? Yes. One of the big inspirations for me has come from returning to a village I lived in over 70 years ago. An amazing amount of things are still there, like I can still walk by the river, I can still revisit adventures that I had as as an eight-year-old. So quite a few of the poems in the collection are trying to hold together those memories that I'm seeing afresh now. So maybe I should start with Holding Hands With Myself, which I wrote in 2020 during the pandemic, but the setting for it is 70 years earlier. These days, I'm taking the dog along the same walk, treading the flattened path, pulled towards the river where I played as a child. Dark figures slipping between the willows, ghosts 
from that day when my brother and I wrestled on the bank, our bodies slippery with swimming. The sweet taste of grass in my teeth, how edible it all was, sour bite of sorrel, hawthorn buds, and our tangled flesh, insistent, his wired to beat mine. While my sister, looking on, wasn't part of that punching puppy play, that messing about, careless and close. Drifting home for tea, blotchy with cold, clinging towel and nettled feet. He ran on ahead, discarding me. I saw her when he'd gone, waited for her, helped her over the fence, her hand wordless and warm. If he called me, I knew I'd do it, I'd leave her, but her hand in mine was sibling sticky. It's easier to reach my sister of 70 years ago than to find her now, and harder still to touch the neighbour who passes me, wiping the gatepost, keeping her distance. And there's another one that's sort of linked in my mind anyway with that because holding hands with myself describes a walk very close to where I fell in as a child. I thought I'd been a heroine in this story. <laughs> I thought the whole family would praise me for having saved my little sister and her friend, but I got into terrible trouble because I'd walked through the village on a Sunday dripping with wet and mud. Pond skater. Seventy years ago, I nearly drowned here. Stooping now under dark branches, above the uncertain surface, its floating cloth of weed drilled with raindrops from a sudden sky, my eye keeps sliding below the water, slipping into that self who drowned, didn't drown. That day the log rolled over with me on it, shrugged me off into unkind river arms. The way its swaying glassy forest beckoned me in. It was all mist, mouth drooling water, spit spilling through my sleeves. I was shivered into stillness, into a muffled smothering of scum. How did I not drown? How am I not drowned? The river gathers images for my present eye. A pond skater on the thin skin somewhere between sky and deep, between here and gone. And then another source of inspiration has always been as well as my own childhood, other children's childhood. I worked as a teacher and a play therapist for a long time. This poem is to celebrate something I started in school in Cambridge, which we just called the listening bench. And all I did was once a week at lunchtime, I sat on a rainbow colored bench and I just listened to whatever the children wanted to talk about. 
and this particular child was a very important visitor. He sat next to me on the bench most weeks and never said a word for a term. And then finally he did speak, and this is a poem about that time. Boy. This small body, soft as a shelled pea, popped from its pod, last of six, too many to hold, dropped onto stony ground, sits close, whispering, fingers along her arm, holds the thread anchored to her knitting, cradles the ball of wool, shapes it with urgent hands, like a nest, he says. Yes, like a nest. Well, those three poems, particularly about childhood, about memories, nostalgia, is that what you like to write about? It often seems to happen that that's what comes out. Somebody once said, the thing to get you going is pick up something close to you like a pebble, write about the pebble as closely and as exactly as you can, and whatever huge truth you might be thinking you were going to write about will be there in the description of a pebble. So I don't necessarily set out to look at my childhood, but it does keep popping in. And does writing about it make you view it differently? Yes, particularly sharing it. I only have one sibling left now, and that's been very interesting because she's the only person who actually shares the scenery of quite a bit of it. And what's been the reaction to this book? Well, overwhelming, really, because it is as if you've had a wonderful imagined scenario and then you're suddenly in it. And it's great to have a debut when you're 86. And Chris, obviously you're going to carry on writing. Absolutely, yes. Up to the very last minute. It's a great thing that's very easy to do wherever you are because all you need is a stubby pencil and a bit of paper. And Holding It Together by Christina Buckton is published by the Lamplight Press. We're talking on Bookmark today to Toby Wilkinson about his book Tutankhamun's Trumpet, the story of ancient Egypt in a hundred objects. As you've mentioned earlier, Toby, Tutankhamun very young when he died. Did that influence what went in the tomb and what didn't go in the tomb? Yes, he was probably only 18 or 19 when he died. And he obviously died unexpectedly. The tomb that he was buried in was not the tomb that was originally intended for him. He was in the process of, of excavating a much bigger tomb in the Valley of the Kings, but he died unexpectedly. And, and this very small tomb had to be pressed into service. And it's why the objects appear to be almost thrown in like a cupboard under the stairs, because there wasn't much room and it was completed in, in a very hurried way. One of the most poignant objects, I think, from the tomb is the little mummies of Tutankhamun's two stillborn daughters. And it's a very sad human tale that he and his wife had two daughters, but neither survived into, into childbirth. And of course, because then Tutankhamun dies very young, that marks the end of the royal line. And one can only speculate if he had lived much longer, if he'd founded a royal line himself, you know, his tomb could have been even richer in its contents than it was. So in a sense, what we have in this tomb 
is not really representative of the greatest pharaohs of ancient Egypt. We can only imagine what untold treasures they must have been buried with. Who decided what went in the tomb? Was there a list that people ticked off? How did it work? Well, there were certainly some objects that were considered essential for the pharaoh in the afterlife. Some of the magical objects, some of the objects placed upon the mummy. But other things, I think, would have been whatever was to hand in the royal storerooms. No doubt they would have done a kind of requisition of of various royal palaces, swept up a number of objects which they thought could be helpful. We don't know that there was a set list other than some of these key ritual objects. It really would have been whatever they had to hand and could dispense with, I think. And the objects that are in there show the breadth of the craftsmanship that was operating in ancient Egypt at that time, woodwork, silversmithing. I mean, that... The vast array of goods there, they're quite beautiful. They're absolutely stunning, um, not just on an aesthetic level, but as you say, the, the technology. The technology of chariot making, for example, which was highly advanced in Tutankhamun's time. He was buried with many chariots, and they're really you know, very fine examples of their kind. Jewellery making was incredibly sophisticated, using lots of different semi-precious stones gathered from far and wide, metalwork, glass making. All sorts of techniques and and art history um, represented amongst those tomb objects. And and I think it can be quite surprising to people that three and a half thousand years ago, there was such great craftsmanship. But um, it is one of the striking features of of ancient Egyptian civilization. Well, let's hear your second choice of music now, which is Zadok the Priest by Handel. Why this one? This is perhaps one of the greatest pieces of music written to commemorate royal occasions. It's sung at every coronation of a a British monarch. For me, it takes us back to ancient Egypt in in the following way, which is that the, the way that monarchies develop and the kind of pageantry that they develop in order to celebrate the ruling monarch really hasn't changed that much in thousands of years. And many of the rituals surrounding an ancient Egyptian coronation would be familiar today. And indeed, ancient Egyptian kings celebrated jubilees. They were the first um, monarchs in the world to mark jubilees. And, And of course, this year, we're marking the platinum jubilees. So those connections between ancient kingship and modern kingship, I think are very interesting and, and again, help to bridge the, the divide of the centuries. So Zadok the Priest, for me, is exactly the kind of thing that might have been sung, albeit using different harmonies and different words, at a pharaoh's coronation. Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio. With Heifer's Bookshop, the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876.
And we're talking on Bookmark today to Toby Wilkinson about his book, Tutankhamun's Trumpet, the story of ancient Egypt in a hundred objects. Toby, you're talking there about monarchy, about rulers, the role of the pharaoh, very, very complicated rule that, wasn't it? It was military, it was political, it was religious, all bound up into one role. Yes, it was a very multidimensional role, um, head of state and head of government, more like an American president than a British king or queen, but also this very, very important sacred role as, as high priest of every cult and as really the intermediary between the gods and the people. And the people of ancient Egypt regarded the pharaoh almost as a living god. They felt that if they worshipped the pharaoh and looked after the pharaoh, the pharaoh would intercede on their behalf with the god. So it was a kind of contract. So it's very difficult in in the modern era to equate any role with, with that of the ancient Egyptian pharaoh. Perhaps the closest we might come was the role of the Dalai Lama in Tibet back in the early 20th century. But there are kind of aspects of the Pope's role today, of the Queen's role, of an American president, all rolled into one. It was absolutely the role at the pinnacle of ancient Egyptian society. And the Egyptians believed that the success of the pharaoh was intimately bound up with the success of the whole country. And as you say, there are many, many differences. But one of the points you make in the book is that there are these stunning differences, but they're not that different from us. I think this is one of the most important things to remember. When we look back to the ancient world, we can be tempted to think that people somehow were different in that far off time. But of course, we're all human beings and we experience the same emotions of love and loss and triumph and tragedy and hopes and and despair. What I've tried to do through the objects from Tutankhamun's tomb is, is not only tell the great sophistication of of ancient Egypt, but the human story that lies behind it as well. And and to form those connections, those bonds with the ancient world through some of the more everyday objects that the king was buried with. Do you have a favourite object? Gosh, it's very difficult to choose from a hundred. One of the objects that I love is is a piece of jewellery, which is a very beautiful and complex composition. But the the centre of the jewellery is a scarab beetle, and the beetle's body is made of green glass. And the story of this is quite extraordinary because this is not man-made glass. This is naturally occurring glass in the far reaches of the Sahara Desert, which the Egyptians must have obtained supplies of and brought back. And what makes it even more extraordinary is that this glass was produced by a meteorite impact in ancient times, which turned the sand into green glass. So it has a kind of extraterrestrial origin. It's a miraculous substance. And it was clearly chosen by Tutankhamun's jewellers as an appropriate material for a jewel that was intended to aid the king's resurrection into the afterlife. So in so many ways, technological, aesthetic and its symbolism, it's just an extraordinary object. But the one that you chose to name the book after was the trumpet, Tutankhamun's trumpet. Why did you single that one out? Yes, that's the last of the hundred objects that I talk about in the book. And it's really to leave a role for the human imagination. So we have Tutankhamun's trumpet, and indeed it was played on the BBC in 1939. And so we know what it sounded like, and we have the object itself, which we can study. But what is lost forever are the tunes that it played and the occasions on which it would have been played. And this is where, no matter how good the archaeologist or the historian 
there is always a role for the human imagination to fill those gaps, to round out the picture of, of life in ancient Egypt. It's a salutary reminder that although we know a lot about Tutankhamun's time, there's still uh, a lot that we don't know. I was also interested about what was on the walls of the tomb in the way the tomb becomes an object in itself, doesn't it? The hieroglyphics that were on the walls that people used to make a point, obviously not Tutankhamun, people used to make a point about the succession, what came after him. Yes, this was um, a a very clever ruse. So um, because Tutankhamun left no surviving issue, um, the throne was essentially up for grabs when he died. And ancient Egyptian custom held that whoever buried the previous pharaoh became the next pharaoh. And so you can imagine there was a bit of jostling for position as to who would carry out the burial and secure the throne. And it was an aged courtier that ultimately did this. And just to make sure that everybody knew he was the legitimate heir, he had himself portrayed inside Tutankhamun's tomb, carrying out the burial rites, as if to say, I did this. And by law and custom, I'm the next pharaoh and no one can now disagree. Thank you, Toby. Well, well, kind of let's stay with that theme of succession almost as we speak to Michelle Paver. Michelle's Wolf Brother series of novels for young adults has sold over three million copies worldwide and been translated into 36 languages. Wolfbane is the ninth and final novel in the series and came out in April. When I spoke to Michelle, I asked her if she'd always intended the Wolf Brothers series to be nine books long. No, I'd planned it as six books. Way back in 2004, when I wrote the first one, Wolf Brother, I planned a six book series and I wrote them. Adventure, you know, set in the Stone Age, boy, girl, wolf having adventures. And it was only ever intended to be six books. And I you know, finished off with Ghost Hunter and I thought that was it. But strangely enough, the characters didn't leave me. They kept being in the back of my mind. And the fans, I have to say, kept saying, please write another one. So a few years later, I had an idea for not one, but three more books. So a couple of years ago, I wrote Viper's Daughter and then Skin Taker and now Wolfbane. But those three books were planned. I mean, I should say that they are standalone. You can dive in, but... Yeah, Wolfbane is definitely going to be the last one. I think I've given them a a good send off. So those characters wouldn't leave you alone. Are they going to leave you alone now? Do you think? Have you said goodbye? (laughs) I think I have. I've never had children, but it feels like some of my friends, they say how it feels when, you know, your children go off to university. You know, they've sort of left, really. It feels like that. But, you know, writing is a mysterious business. You never know. And um, I've been very close to Torak and Wren and, of course, Wolf, because one of my main characters is a wolf. And I've been writing in each story from his point of view. I shall miss that. What about writing the last book? Is there a lot of pressure on you to have a grand finale finish? Well, I don't really feel that too much because... Each of the books is a standalone story and they are adventures. You know, however much I try to portray an authentic Stone Age world and do research and everything, I never lose sight of the fact that they're adventures. They've got to be exciting. So in a sense, each book has a grand finale. It's got to have a really rousing climax. Wolfbane is no exception. But you're right in that when you know you're bringing the whole thing to a close, there is that bit more pressure because I used to hate it as a child. If the series I loved sort of tailed off towards the end. And that was something I was absolutely determined not to do. 
that's why I didn't just carry on after the six books when the publishers were saying, please write more. You know, I didn't want it to dwindle. So, yes, there was some pressure. But then having said that, you know, I'm a planner. I like to plan. I knew I had a pretty rousing climax. So without wanting to blow my own trumpet, I'm pleased with the way Wolfbane has brought things to a close and sent the characters off, given them a good send off. And tied up loose ends. I mean, presumably you yes. had to bring lots of storylines to a conclusion. Well, I did. And the nice thing about writing the three extra books, the three more books, was that there were certain things in the first six of the Wolf Brother books, you know, certain characters. They were really interesting. The fans loved them. But I didn't quite have time, because they're adventure stories, to do any more with them. And so with these last three books, particularly with, with Wolfbane, I've been able to do a bit more with them and with some of the baddies as well, which has been great, <laughs> really fun. And I think the fans, as well as new readers, have enjoyed that. And you say you've come to terms with not writing about the characters anymore. What about this research that you've been doing, all the intrepid things you've done over the years? You're going to miss that. That has been the best bit <laughs> of doing these books because it's a lot easier than writing, you know, um, swimming with wild killer whales, making friends with wolves, traveling around the Arctic has been huge fun, partly because it's not just about, you know, making sure that things are accurate. You know, what does a grizzly bear's footprint look like and how does it feel to crawl into its den when the grizzly, I hasten to add, is not there? It's not just checking the facts, it's getting ideas. Black ice on the edge of the Greenland ice sheet gave me a, a climax in one of my books. So it gives you ideas and surprises and amazing experiences. So, yes, I will miss that. But then having said that, you know, I'm hoping I will get ideas for other books. And there's always research and it doesn't have to be exotic research in strange places. It can be, you know, some of my best research has been in Suffolk. So, you know, that's great. And would you write another series again? I don't know if I get a good idea. It all depends on getting the right idea. And I have not much control over what, you know, what bubbles up from the unconscious. So I hope so. We'll just have to see. Did this series take the direction you'd anticipated? I know you say you were a planner, but did it go in a different direction? Oh, yes. It's interesting. A plan isn't a blueprint. A plan is a sort of rough idea. That's what I mean. I've got a rough idea of where I'm going, but then the characters will always surprise me. I mean, Ren, the, the, the female character, I had originally planned for her just to be in the beginning and the end of the second book. That probably shows the fact that I was brought up in the 60s and, you know, girls didn't tend to have adventures in the sort of books, which is why I used to read boys' books in those days. But when I came to actually write the story, this is the second Wolf Brother book, Ren, her friend, was in trouble, so she went to help Torak, which meant I had to completely redo the plan. But yes, so, so those sort of things, very much so. And then, you know, you learn things about the characters along with them and their relationship with Wolf. These stories can be, you know, I say they're adventures, but they can be quite dark at times. But I see the, the friendship between Torak and Wolf as a sort of golden thread running through it. And that's deepened in a way that I hadn't quite expected. And do you have a favourite book of the nine? I don't think so. I think it's usually the last one because writing is such a messy business. You know, I rewrite the stories about 30 or 40 times. So by the time I, I come to the end... And then for me, the icing on the cake is always when I get to sit in the recording studio and hear Ian McKellen reading the audiobook. All the difficult bits have been smoothed out. So it's usually the one I've just finished. So in this case, it has to be Wolfbane. And how lovely that this series has put you in contact with young readers around the world. It really has been such a success. It's been something that I hadn't expected. I know people always say that, but 
what I hadn't realized was that, you know, we were all hunter gatherers once. Everybody in the world has a Stone Age prehistory. Wolves were very widespread, so they're in folklore all over the world. Japanese readers have wolf folklore, so do South Americans and Central Middle Eastern people, you know, that sort of thing. And yes, it has been really fun and, and taking part in live chat on, on my YouTube channel. You know, we had someone from Guatemala tuning in and Sweden and Finland and Australia. You know, it's very heartening. And, and I think they seem to regard the characters in these books as their friends. Many of them have said, you know, during the pandemic, it really helped them. So that's a lovely feeling for me, as well as, you know, these books. Wolf Brother came out in 2004. And so quite a lot of my readers are now in their 20s. Some of them have become archaeologists or biologists or conservationists, partly inspired by Wolf Brother. So that's amazing, too. That's fantastic, isn't it? And what about all this wolf knowledge that you've got now? What are you going to do with that? <laughs> well, I have, I mean, I'm not a wolf expert, but, you know, I have studied wolf behaviour and I've certainly befriended wolves at the UK Wolf Conservation Trust. I mean, I've thoroughly enjoyed writing from wolf's point of view. I found it surprisingly easy to become a wolf, not quite sure why. But for the moment, I think I will give that a rest. I think that the next book may not have a wolf in it. <laughs> Although I have to say, you know, dogs tend to sort of creep into most of my stories. I'm not quite sure why. I just love them. And what is the next book? Don't know. I don't know. It's as for many people, it's been a slightly interesting time that, you know, the pandemic. I've spent a lot of time looking after my 91 year old mother who lives quasi independently. In other words, supported by me and my sister. So I'm just giving myself a bit of time to, to think about that and hope that my unconscious provides another story. And Wolfbane by Michelle Paver is published by Zephyr. We've been talking on Bookmark today to Toby Wilkinson about his book, Tutankhamun's Trumpet, the story of ancient Egypt in a hundred objects, published by Picador. Toby, just wondering all this study of ancient Egypt, so you've been doing more or less on and off since the age of five. Has it changed your view of the world? Has it shaped who you are? I think it has. And one of the things that it makes me reflect upon is the great variety in human cultures and also the, the transience of power. I'm sure that Tutankhamun would have thought that his culture, his civilization would last forever. It had already lasted for 2000 years when he became Pharaoh and he might've expected it to carry on, but of course it didn't. And so even the most successful civilization comes to an end. And I think that's a valuable lesson for anybody so, yes, I think it makes me reflect on the kind of human condition, on politics, religion, society from an archaeological perspective. And nothing stays the same forever. We need to make the most of, of what we have. And what about the future? Are there any more tombs to be uncovered, do you think? Well, this is the great question, isn't it? And, and there is just a possibility that there may be one last royal tomb that has not yet been discovered in the Valley of the Kings. When Howard Carter and Lord Carnarvon were excavating and discovered Tutankhamun's sepulchre, they left a small area of the Valley of the Kings uncleared. There is one pharaoh from the time who we think we know was buried in the Valley of the Kings, but whose tomb hasn't yet been discovered. So who knows? Maybe there is one more undiscovered tomb. It would be lovely to think so, wouldn't it? Oh, that is exciting. And a question we ask all our guests on Bookmark, what are you reading at the moment? Well, I'm, I'm reading something very different from ancient Egypt or archaeology. I'm reading a wonderful book by Merlin Sheldrake called Entangled Life. 
and it's all about how fungi uh, make the world go round. And it's absolutely fascinating. And it, it's a great example of, of science written for a, a general readership. And it completely upends our ideas of, of how the plant world and the animal kingdom work and the role of fungi, these kind of unsung organisms in so many of the planet's systems. So it's, it's an absolutely fascinating read. Thank you, Toby. We'll come back to you in just a moment for your last choice of music. But a heads up that our next show, our featured guest is Susan Sellers talking about her novel Firebird. And we'll hear from Liz Webb on her debut crime novel, The Daughter. But we'll sign out now, Toby, with your last choice of music. A bit different to the one your previous choice is this. Uh, Barry White, My First, My Last and My Everything. Why this one? Well, not only is it a great song and, and it's a, a song that has personal resonance for me, but again, it's to go back to that point about the human story. And, and Tutankhamun, yes, he was a great pharaoh, surrounded with gold and pageantry in his lifetime and in, in his death. But ultimately, he was a young man. He was a teenager. He had a young wife. They hoped to start a family. And the first, the last, my everything, I think sums up that human bond, which we must never lose sight of, and, and which in Tutankhamun's case, I think, comes through very strongly from the objects that were buried with him in his tomb.